Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome to class number 40 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, as we are now 40 classes and, and uh, the better part of a year into this, uh, uh, into this little endeavor. And we're on the, and we're in the Barrow Downs. In fact, we are gonna uh, begin inside the Barrow here tonight, which is exciting. And we're gonna get we're gonna get some Barrow White poetry, uh, which is really fun. So, uh, with all of these things to look forward to, I am eager to uh, jump straight in tonight. But I do have one important announcement, uh, just to make sure that everybody is uh, uh, on board with the exciting thing that's happening this week, because this week is the beginning of our next. Uh, class, our next, uh, our, our next book in the Mythgard Academy series. Uh, we are, in fact, starting Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams tomorrow night. I'm all ready. I, I, I've got my towel, right? I got my peanuts. Beers in the fridge is all ready to go. So we're going to be great for tomorrow night. I know where my towel is, and uh, I'm excited. So we're going to talk about the first, I think, three chapters, the intro and the first three chapters of the book, right, right up through the uh, destruction of the Earth. Uh, so that's going to be that's going to be uh, that's going to be pretty awesome. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, I, I know. I, it's sorry, sorry, oh, sorry. I apologize for that. Um, anyway, so I, I'm 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 excited. Uh, it's going to be a much shorter class, of course. Cause it's a much shorter book than say the Truth of Isengard. Um, but I'm looking to do. Uh, I'm planning to do five class sessions on the uh, on on the book, and then I'm gonna we're gonna do a class session after that on. Um, uh, the original radio broadcast, the BBC radio broadcast, which of course came first. This actually I only learned fairly recently. I'd always just kind of read the book and I didn't know much about it. Um, but of course the BBC broadcast came first and the book was uh, uh, was based on that. So I want to go back and look at the radio broadcast as well, which is really interesting. Um, so uh, anyway, and thank you. Thank you, those of you who are, are uh, calling me a hoopy fruit. I, I appreciate that. Um, so anyway... Uh, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll be able to join me. It's so it's tomorrow. If you go to mythgard.org, uh, you'll find the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy page uh, there under the Mythgard Academy tab, uh, and that will give you everything that you need to know. The reading assignments and the uh, and the link to join us and everything. So uh, uh, so it's gonna be great. Anyway, I hope that you will be able to join us. You can also join us right here on Twitch. I'll be simulcasting uh, on Twitch. So if all else fails, don't worry about it. Just come to twitch.tv slash signamu and you'll see it. Um, you know, I'm simulcasting all of my uh, classes here on Twitch. So again, all you have to do, subscribe to our Twitch channel and you'll never miss uh, any of the things that I do. Even when, for instance, I do a completely uh, surprise, stream surprise even to myself. Uh, I was not, I would have caught like the latest of the like horrid bugs that my family brings home to me uh this past weekend so i was i was uh, rather under the weather but you know it's my kids right so when my son comes to me and says can we please do another uh stream talking about the silmarillion i'm like well, okay like i'm dragging myself out of my sick bed and doing a spontaneous stream on sunday afternoon which is what i did uh, so, uh, and that's been really great for those of you who have, uh, uh, who didn't know about these. Um, my, my nine-year-old son, Matthias, and I are doing a, a combined stream where we're doing analysis and discussion of, uh, uh, Blind Guardian's Nightfall and Middle-Earth album. We're going through, uh, you know, in my traditional fashion, we did a song and a half, actually, um, 
on uh, on Sunday afternoon, which was which was really pretty good progress. Uh, it was uh, it was pretty awesome. Matthias was killing it. He had a bunch of really good observations that I didn't see, so uh, it was really neat. Anyway, um, so uh, so yeah, so I hope you know, just again uh, how you can uh, arrange to not miss those things live. Just subscribe to our t- uh, to our Twitch channel, and you'll get a notification uh, when those things uh, when those things happen. So anyway, all right. Uh, thanks, Lady Shmevulak approves of uh, of of my son's name. Yeah, Matthias is a really fun name. I was I, I was really happy uh, with that one. Um, to be honest, the, the one of the main reasons we named him Matthias is that I wanted to, you know, we kind of wanted to give him an unusual name, but I wanted an, an unusual name with an escape clause, right? So if he didn't want to have an unusual name, you know, if he turned out to be like really shy and didn't want to be different. Uh, then, you know, he could still just be Matt if he wanted to, you know, if he wanted to fit in or he could have a cool and unusual name. Um, but I've always loved the name Matthias. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's worked out really well. And he's always very amused, uh, when, uh, our friend and, and, uh, frequent attendee, not so much in these evening, uh, uh, sessions for obvious reasons, uh, Matthias from Sweden, uh, attends. And, uh, so, you know, he's to see, uh, the guy from Sweden who shares his name. So, um, yeah, yeah. Nat Vilkius, I know, right? Like, it is the name of one of the apostles, like the 13th apostle, granted, uh, but, uh, and that, and it was, it, and I will admit, it is Acts chapter 1 and not Redwall that I was thinking of uh, when, uh, when I named him originally, but, you know, uh, Redwall was just kind of a, a bonus, <laughs> actually. Um, anyway, so, uh, cool. So let us, uh, let us begin. Let's jump straight into uh, the barrow here. Remember that last week, one of the things that I was emphasizing is really really what I was kind of uh, trying to set up, right, Uh, was what what I want to look at today, which is where is the struggle? Um, This is a scene, right? Frodo and the Barrow, which... I mean, this is a this is a this is a pivotal moment, right? Uh, Gandalf is later going to call this moment that we're looking at here tonight um, as possibly the most dangerous moment of Frodo's entire trip, right? So, from when they leave, well, I was going to say Buckland, really, when they leave Bag End, uh, all the way until when they get to Rivendell. So, including you know the Ford of Bruinen, including the Dell under Weathertop, um, Gandalf says that this moment might have been the most dangerous of all. So wherein lies the struggle? You know, what we're not going to get is a whole lot of action, right? Um, how is it that Frodo uh, fights? Because he does fight the white, right? Uh, this, is, this is a struggle between Frodo and the white. Uh, and I want to watch, uh, watch how this, uh, how this goes. So, all right, let us... Uh, let us go in, and I have uh, uh, no notes and queries tonight, just straight into the text. Uh, my sort of joking title is More Hospitality. We talked a lot about the hospitality of Tom Bombadil, of course, for The Hobbits. And uh, tonight we're going to see the more unusual hospitality of the Barrow White, but it's still a form, a kind of form, a twisted form of hospitality. Um, 
<laughs> so anyway, I see you guys all teasing me about saying that you fight the white. Uh, JJ wants you to fight the white at night. Uh, but that's not all right, actually, JJ, because it's really... And you certainly don't want to fight him on the east side, uh, which, of course, is what Frodo ends up doing. Okay, so let's look at Frodo waking up inside the barrow. When he came to himself again, for a moment he could recall nothing except a sense of dread. Then suddenly he knew that he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. He was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him, and he was probably already under the dreadful spells of the barrow whites, about which whispered tales spoke. He dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon a cold stone, with his hands on his breast. Okay, now let's just pause there for a second. Look at that first paragraph. Um, first of all, I don't know what the whispered tales are, and I kind of wish I did, right? What are the dreadful spells of the Barrowites? So notice, for one thing, right, the fear of the Barrowites, the danger that he's in from the Barrowites, sometimes people will talk about the Barrowites as if, you know... It's like a zombie thing, right? Or like an undead thing. I mean, we have, a, I mean, we've, I've talked about the Barrow Whites, you know, a bunch of times in association with like Halloween broadcasts and stuff like that. Um, but if you think about the kinds of, probably the two most popular, uh, you know, undead motifs in the modern world are zombies and vampires, right? We get a lot of zombies and vampires in our culture, uh, and both of them are interesting in different ways, right? And they seem to both be kind of associated with different fears and anxieties and different sort of cultural interests and taboos and things like that. The Barrow White does, is neither one of those things, right? Um, he's certainly not... Um, He's certainly not like a zombie, right? The danger that Frodo, Frodo having been taken uh, by the undead, uh, he's not worried. He's just going to get his brains eaten or something like that, right? That is, that's just, it's obviously totally not the issue, right? Um, so what is the issue? The issue is that are the dreadful spells that the Barrowites are going to, they're not going to kill him exactly. At least that's not, like what he's thinking, um, he's not worrying about being being brutally and horribly killed. Um, he's worried about the dreadful spells that they're going to uh, that they're going to lay him under here. Um, so, what are the dreadful spells about which whispered tales? spoke. Uh, and, uh, you know, I agree that, um, I assume, Nadvokias, that these are dreadful spells that the whites themselves inflict upon others, that they, um, under which they place, like through which they do, I don't even know what, right? Because we, I even heard the whispers myself, right? Um, and I assume it's not dreadful news about the whites, though that is a possible interpretation of that. Um, because it's tales speaking about the spells. So I assume that those are spells like incantations, like in enchantments. Um, yeah. Um, yes, JJ, he is worried about a fate worse than death. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. What, um, yeah, exactly. Are they spells of possession? Possibly. Domination? Like to have your your will and spirit dominated um, by the Barrow Whites? I don't know, but look what cues we get. We're told, first of all, the stories about the dreadful spells of the Barrow Whites are so terrible that people only whisper them. Right, they don't even want to speak them aloud. So the tales themselves are cre- are clearly very dreadful. Um, but look at the immediate cue that we get, namely Frodo's own posture. Right, um, he dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon a cold stone, with his hands on his breast. Frodo has not been killed. Right, the Barrowite is taking him. But he hasn't ripped him up. He hasn't eaten his brains. What the Barrow White has done is laid him out as if he were already dead. Right? He is lying on a stone beer inside a barrow. Notice that uh, he was in a barrow. Right? That's Frodo's first realization. And, you know, something that I think... And this is such an obvious observation that it might seem that it doesn't actually need to be said, but I think it does. Because I know that I, for one, often forget it. Um, that is to say, forget. Because the word barrow doesn't. Str- Replace the word barrow with the word tomb, for instance. Right? He was in a tomb. He wakes up and finds himself lying on a stone beer in a tomb with his hands folded on his chest, right? Um, a barrow is a burying place. Yes, it's a scary place where the undead live, and, and again, that, that's, I think, the reason why the barrow doesn't hit me quite as, as hard, because I, I, or doesn't sort of, when I, when I kind of put myself into Frodo's place, the fear that I feel is like the fear of the creepy undead creatures, not the fear of, like, I've been buried alive, Right, um, I've been buried alive and left for dead, but that's clearly a pretty major issue for for Frodo. Right, he was in a barrow, a barrow white had taken him. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly, Rothgar. He's in the posture of a corpse. He's not dead, but it is as if uh, it is as if he's dead. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's keep going. But though his fear was so great that it seemed to be a part of the very darkness that was round him, he found himself as he lay, thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, of their jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire and talking about roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply, it's true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid, Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, and a terrible end, but the thought heartened him. He found himself stiffening, as if for a final spring. He no longer felt limp like a helpless prey. No longer felt limp like a helpless prey. No longer felt that way suggests that he did feel that way before, right? That that made a part of that initial feeling that he had when he woke up. 
He was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him, and he was probably already under the dreadful spells of the barrow whites. Right? There's that kind of fatalism. Like it's already done. I'm over. I'm. 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 There's no way I can get out of this. The hopelessness, the despair, which led to him feeling limp, like a helpless prey. Right. Um, but he no longer feels like that. Look at the first sentence of this second paragraph. Though his fear was so great that it seemed to be a part of the very darkness that was around him. Right? I think it is a part of the darkness that is around him. In fact, I think that the fear that he is under is the dreadful spell of the Barrow White, right? Or at least it's a part of the dreadful spells of the Barrow White. That fear that that lying there limp like a helpless prey, already laid out in his funeral, right after his funeral. He's already buried and laid out. He's just not been killed yet, right? Um, and that sense, the, 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 the horror of that, the paralyzing fear of that, the despair that that leads to, I, like, I've already lost, right? I am in the midst of being destroyed. Uh, and... I've heard rumors about the Barrow Whites and whatever absolutely horrible thing they're going to do, they're already doing to me, right? I think I'm probably already under their spells, right? That is the attack of the Barrow Whites. Uh, that is, uh, um, yeah, uh, that is the, the, um, the significance, I think, of the attack that he's, um, that is the spell, that he's under. And he's fighting it. And how does he fight it? He fights it by remembering Bilbo and Bilbo's stories and of their adventures together in the Shire, uh, talking about the roads and talking about adventures. Um, I don't know uh, exactly how you measure the... Uh, somebody was just asking this. How do you measure the uh, um, the like the best hobbit in the shire right um but uh i think i mean in context the 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 measuring stick that seems to be being used here or rather the quality that is uh being assessed uh and on which frodo is being praised so uh um uh, uh so lavishly here by the narrator is um timidity essentially courage and timidity that uh you know that he has he is he is not very timid even the most timid hobbit has a a seed of courage uh that's in his heart that can still grow and will grow under extreme circumstances uh frodo is apparently uh not uh <laughs> tom i suppose that the hobbit who makes the best fish and chips is probably uh also in the running for best hobbit in the shire um but that doesn't seem to be the context of the remark uh, right here. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Corey, I think that he is fighting it by remembering the Shire. Um, so she's asking, is, is he fighting it by remembering the Shire? Does that just come up, you know, sort of by chance as he's lying there? No, I think that that's... I think that that's um, Fighting it. Notice the, again the structure of that first sentence. Though his fear was so great, right? Despite the greatness of his fear, which is like surrounding him like the darkness, which again I think it is. I think that fear is coming from outside, right? From the 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 darkness of the barrow itself, 
right? Though his fear was so great, he found himself thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories. So the fact that he is thinking about Bilbo Baggins and Bilbo's stories, despite his fear, that's a good thing. That's a sign of his lack of timidity, right? That's a sign of his courage. That's a sign of his character, what makes him the best hobbit in the Shire. Um, And again, then in that last sentence, we get a further explanation of it, right? He thought he had come to the end of his adventures. He thinks he's done, right? He doesn't have hope, exactly. It's, he's, it's not, he's not being optimistic here. He doesn't think he can get out of it. He is pretty sure he's going to die. He might already be dead, or, you know, like, fatally wounded, or, like, terminally ensorcelled, or whatever has happened to him. He doesn't even know what's happened to him, right? Um... He thinks he's come to the end of his adventures and that it's a horrible end, a terrible end that he's come to. But what's his reaction to that? His reaction is hardness, right? The despair that he feels does not make him a helpless prey to the fear. It hardens him against it. That's that's uh, that's that's the good reaction, right? That's the strong reaction. Um of course, you may uh, remembering that hardening, right? We're going to see that, of course, uh, very prominently with Sam and Mordor. If you remember Sam and Mordor and the hardening process that goes on with him, and when does it happen? When is he most hardened? He's most hardened when he feels most despairing. That is most certain that they're going to die, and they they're not they they can't make it back, right? That's when his will hardens uh, in this same way. So. Frodo here, so we, we're, we're seeing the struggle happening, right? The white is on offense with his fear and despair, his desire to make Frodo into a helpless prey, right? Frodo's refusal to be a helpless prey and instead having his courage harden and him, even his body stiffening as if ready for action, right? Um, that response is his counter to the spell, to the dreadful spell of the Barrow White. Um, yeah, and Matt, that's a great point. Matt is pointing out a nice parallel from this shift uh, from timidity to courage in the darkness in the moment before Bilbo leaps over Gollum. And Matt, that's a really interesting one, right? Because on a physical level, it's reversed. That is, I, I agree that sort of morally, spiritually, there's a parallel there, right? But but physically, while he's feeling helpless and desperate, Bilbo, I mean, right? He's like ready for action, right? He's going to kill it, stab its eyes out, right? He's going to, he's going to, he's, he's, he's ready to attack Gollum. And when his pity emerges and his resolve hardens, he lets down that, right? He, he eases off uh, the desperate action desire, Right, so it's kind of interesting how we get that reversal with Frodo, uh, and, and obviously their situations are not the same. This is, uh, uh, but 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 I do think it's a really interesting parallel. Even the more interesting for those differences uh, in those sort of more external circumstances. Um, yeah. Now, Alia, uh, uh, Alia is wondering uh, what the significance is of the fact that the memories of walking with Bilbo, talking of adventures, that gives him courage. He thinks about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, 
right? So he's not just thinking of Bilbo's stories. He's thinking of Bilbo Baggins and his stories, right? Um, he's imagining they're jogging together in the lanes of the Shire and talking about roads and adventures. The roads... Um, of course, should remind us of the song. Right, the road goes ever on and on song. Uh, and you'll you see how that fits with the thoughts that we get from him at the end of the paragraph. Right? Um, the road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Right now, far ahead, the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with weary feet, if you're Frodo. Right, until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet, and whither then, I cannot say. Right? Well, whither then has turned out to be in a barrow, right? Under the dreadful spells of a barrow white. Uh, he has come to the end of his road, and it's a terrible end at the end of his road, right? Um, so that seems to me this, that I, I, thinking about roads and adventures, I can't help but think of the poem, and I think that that's. Um, you know, a big part of, of what we're supposed to be hearing there, right? Um, and in a sense, it's so it's that realization. On the one hand, you could say, well, that's kind of where the despair comes in, right? And yet, thinking about it in this context is the thing that that fuels him, right? Um, it's possible, Oakwig, that recalling Bilbo's successful adventure brings hope. But again, I don't see hope here. Uh, the, 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 the hardening is not like, I can still get out of this. I don't see <clears throat> much evidence of Frodo thinking, if I just keep my head, I can still survive, right? I can still make it. Um, what we do see is his determination uh, to resist to the last, not to give in, not to just allow himself to be a helpless prey, right? Um, JJ's asking, do we ever hear anything about Hobbit funerary practices? Um, when was we, when were we talking about this? I had a long conversation with, and one of these streams, we talked for a while about Hobbit funerary practices. Uh, and the, and finally I came up with one, uh, the very few references to it, but we do get one reference and that is the grave uh, we know that hobbits bury their dead um, because remember the uh, the hobbits who are killed in the Battle of Bywater uh, during the, the the scouring of the Shire and a stone is erected right with their names listed and everything. Um, so, and that's the only reference I can think of to hobbit funerals or uh, or hobbit burials. But they do seem to uh, to bury uh, their dead. Um, but we don't uh, we don't. See, I think it was in the context of Lotro somewhere. Maybe it was in a Grifflet stream. I can't remember. Um, when we're talking about like graveyards, Hobbit graveyards, like never seeing any Hobbit graveyards and wondering what they're like. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, exactly. Catriona, it may be the end, but he's not going down without a fight. Yes, that's the mental state that he's in. And that is... He's not holding out for victory, right? He's not, he's not motivated by hope for victory. But that is 
victory, right? That's victory in this battle. Um, holding on to that resolution and not allowing himself to be a victim, not giving in to this fear that is surrounding him, I think literally, uh, and not just figuratively. Um, let's keep going. As he lay there, thinking and getting a hold of himself, he noticed all at once that the darkness was slowly giving way. A pale greenish light was growing round him. It did not at first show him what kind of a place he was in, for the light seemed to be coming out of himself and from the floor beside him, and had not yet reached the roof or wall. He turned, and there in the cold glow he saw lying beside him Sam, Pippin, and Mary. They were on their backs, and their faces looked deathly pale. They were clad in white. About them lay many treasures, of gold maybe, though in that light they looked cold and unlovely. On their heads were circlets, gold chains were about their waists, and on their fingers were many rings. Swords lay by their sides. Swords lay by their sides, and shields were at their feet. But across their three necks lay one long naked sword. Okay. Um... J.J., I don't know why Frodo was apart from the others. I have a theory, though. That is, I ask myself, what what reason could there be, right? Why would the Barrow Whites put him aside separately? One possibility is that the other three managed to stay together, and Frodo was the only one who was separated out, so he was brought in separately and therefore treated separately. Um, I don't... But I don't really believe that. Um, I suspect that it's about the ring. Uh, I, I noticed they, the others have been given rings. As uh, 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 Natvokius is just saying, the Barrow White is... You see what a good host he's being, right? Way above and beyond the call of duty. Um, he's not only <clears throat> brought them into his home and made them comfortable, right? But he's given them rings, right? He's a ring giver, just like an Anglo-Saxon king. Um, so that's... Um, that's all good, right? Frodo doesn't have any extra rings, it doesn't seem. Um, there is no reference to treasure. He's clad in white, but there's no reference to other treasures on him. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they are next to him, so uh, uh, Brandon, I agree, there's no reason to think he's completely separate. <clears throat> but the sword isn't across his throat, Um it's, it is across the other's throat. He didn't have to move the sword off of his throat in order to sit up, right? So it does seem that he's, uh, that he's in a different place, at least a little bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, Matt, I agree. The experience that they have is different, right? We'll see, uh, probably next week, um, you know, that Mary's famous comments, you know, the memories that he has when he wakes up, um, which are very strange, right? And Frodo doesn't have that experience. So he does seem to, for one reason or another, right? And we don't know exactly why he, he's not under the spells or not under the same spells or not in the same way, right? Um, now, I don't want to make too much of the, you know, the, the Ring of Power here and his possession of the Ring of Power because no reference is made to it. We have no, we're given no hints by the Whites that they notice it, care about it, anything like that. The only thing that we have is that Frodo does seem to be in a different place from the rest of them. Um, 
at least slightly removed, or at least not with a sword around his neck. And there's a sense in which uh, this thing seems to be... This scene, that is, the whole tableau here, seems to be done to some extent uh, for Frodo's benefit. Do you see what I mean? That is to say, notice the light, right? So the darkness, which, remember, was equated with the fear, right? Or at least very strongly associated with the fear uh, that was threatening to choke him before. Um, The darkness is fading. Uh, because this pale greenish light is growing around him, which is pale greenish light is always bad, uh, as we talked about before. Um, The light seemed to be coming out of himself and from the floor beside him. This is why he can't see... He can see that there's light, but he can't see very much by it, because he seems to be shedding the light himself. He himself is aglow with this pale greenish light, this corpse light this death light that is shining uh, out of him. Also, not a good sign, right? And why? What's the point of the light? What does the light accomplish? What the light accomplishes is to illumine Sam and Pippin and Mary, right? Um, It seems as if he is being shown them in his own death light, right? Again, the, the light that's coming is coming from him, and that light is just illuminating his friends who are already laid out for a funeral, and a very fancy funeral, right? Where they're being, bar- they're, they're, they're being buried like warriors, with their shields at their feet and swords by their sides. They're being uh, laid out like uh, great lords, right? With the their jewels on them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. JJ was just pointing out the warrior thing. It is very much like Boromir. We will see Boromir being um, uh, buried in not exactly the same way, but Sibor. I mean, definitely, definitely some some similarities there. Um, yeah, a ghost light, Tony. Exactly. Um, yeah, Matt points out that the light gives him something to be afraid of again. Exactly. I tend to, um, I tend to think uh, that this is basically the next move in the conflict between the White and Frodo. Right. The first move was darkness and fear uh, to get him to submit. Would he ever have been illuminated? Would he ever have seen Merry and Pippin and Sam um, by this pale light? Had he just given in to the fear and lay like a limp and helpless prey? Probably not. I don't know, but probably not, right? This seems like this is this is the next move, right? This is the white upping the ante here. Um, look, look at your friends. Look at your friends lying dead. Well, not dead yet, right? Uh, dead in life, right? Still living and yet laid out for death. Um... Yeah, yeah. Valori says the juxtaposition of these light-hearted country lads and the long-dead kings really weirded her out as a kid. Uh, it seems almost perverse and wrong. Uh, yes, I mean, there's some the 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 solemnity of this scene is as chilling as any other element of it, right? Um, yes, Tony says the hobbits being laid out like great warriors feels like mockery. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, not humorous mockery, right? No one's having fun with this. Um, uh, but, 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 yes. I mean, there is a, there is a, 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 a sort of sardonic edge to it, perhaps. Um, yeah, and and Matt, you're right. The naked sword across their throats is clearly a sign. But again, someone's taken some time here, right? The Barrow White has had access to the unconscious bodies of Sam and Mary and Pippin for a while, right? They've been stripped, dressed, and decorated, right? And laid out in this quite elaborate way by the Barrow Whites, right? My point, again, really simple point. The Whites have had lots of opportunities to kill Sam and Pippin and Mary, right? Um, why not? Why haven't they killed them, right? Why are they not dead? Um, it, that's one of the reasons why this begins to look like a sort of pageant put on for Frodo's benefit, right? Um, as those three, they're unconscious, they're in sort of a different place, uh, I think spiritually, and we will talk about this uh, next time or whenever we get to their recovery and see what happened with them so that we can compare with Frodo. But for now, the focus is on Frodo, so we need to focus on that. And again, the White's focus would seem to be on Frodo as well, right? Um, yeah, Emmethorn, I agree, ritual does seem to be more important uh, to the Whites. But again, ritual has a point, right? There's a purpose, to ritual. Something is being prepared. Something is being recalled. There's a meaning in ritual, right? Um, I mean, meaning, if you think about it, meaning is what separates ritual from mere routine, right? Um, I mean, I do the same things when I get up in the morning, but it's not a ritual, right? Because it doesn't have meaning. Now, sometimes it can, you know, that kind of routine can can acquire meaning, Right, uh, in which case it does become something almost like a ritual. But again, to me, that's that's the that's what that's the the difference between uh, uh, between ritual and and mere habit or routine. Right, it has a meaning. So what is the meaning? And notice we've uh, we've turned on the stage lights, right, so that Frodo can see. And notice we're about to see the execution. Um, they've waited until Frodo woke up, resisted them, and now they're going to kill the other three hobbits in front of him, right? This is part of the purpose, right? This is part of the meaning, right? Um, Tony, it does feel like the preparation for an act of magic of some kind as well. Um, Yes. The other thing that I think, uh, because remember, there's another situation in which you dress somebody up really fancy and put them in a on a tomb, right? And that's when you're going to sacrifice them, right? Sacrifices get dandied up also before they're sacrificed. Um, so there is something of ritual sacrifice in the deaths or the obviously contemplated deaths of Sam and Mary and Pippin. Um, but again... Frodo's witnessing that. Frodo's responding to that. Presumably responding to that in a particular way. Good Marianne was just saying the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, is clear. That's it's clearly part of the part of the point. Part of the whole show, right? For for 
for the whites. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Lincoln, I agree. I, I think that both are involved. We get both the parody of the warrior's burial and a, a human sacrifice, right? That both of those, I, 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 I can't separate um, either one of those from this situation. We both, we both, we see both of those things happening. Um, and I think in order to understand the the um, the horrible spells of the Barrow Whites, we have to we have to understand both of those different angles, right? to take life and to sacrifice it for some other purpose, right? Um, uh, but also that sort of parody of funerary ritual, right? The parody of the honoring of the dig. And think of how Boromir's burial, this is our, our big sort of model for this, right? Boromir's burial, to honor the dead, to honor their slain companion was so important that even though they were in a very big rush, the three companions stopped to lay out Boromir appropriately, right? Uh, I mean, they were still efficient about it. They couldn't afford the time to build a cairn or something like that, right? But still, it was sufficiently important for them to do that they did it. So we have, and that's where I think... um, Lincoln, it seems to me, not only just the the warrior parody element of it, right, but the whole funeral parody element of it, really. Um, yeah, um, and J, but JJ, yeah, breaking Frodo's will seems to be a big part of what this particular ritual seems to be aimed at. Again, he's he seems to be the target audience here. Um, let's keep going. Suddenly, a song began a cold murmur, rising and falling. The voice seemed far away and immeasurably dreary, sometimes high in the air and thin, sometimes like a low moan from the ground. Out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, strings of words would now and again shape themselves, grim, hard, cold words, heartless and miserable. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Frodo was chilled to the marrow. After a while, the song became clearer, and with dread in his heart, he perceived that it had changed into an incantation. Um, first and most striking thing about this, notice the mixture of adjectives that Tolkien keeps using here. Right On the one hand, we get some strings of adjectives which are fairly similar, right? That is, like, grim, hard, cold, right? They're grim, they're hard, they're cold. Those are not adjectives that are sort of... There's no tension among those adjectives, right? But then we get these pairs where there is... um, uh, where there is tension, right? Sad and horrible. Heartless and miserable. One of those adjectives uh, leads us to, you know, fear, revulsion, right? The other prompts pity and compassion. The, the, the sounds of the... And hang on, hang on, I'm forgetting the adjective. What was the adjective that he... Used? Dreadful. Dreadful spells of the Barrowites. Okay. Um, oop, not quite to the song yet. Um... By the way, immeasurably dreary is one of my favorite phrases from this whole section. Um, horrible, heartless, right? 
those are fairly clear cues for us and for our response to them, right? This is, this is, this is evil. This is something that is just on the opposite spectrum from everything warm and living and good and wholesome and everything else, right? Um, horrible and heartless. But they're not just horrible and heartless. The words of the white are not just horrible and heartless. They're also sad and miserable. Um, yeah, yeah. And JJ, I agree that uh, this does seem to be one of the one of the general trends. Yes, I think that that is the state of evil in general. Repulsive, horrible, and yet pitiful. All of the great villains, ultimately, in Tolkien, are both horrible and sad at the same time. Um, it's, uh... Um, one of the places where you notice this combination, uh most sharply. Kyle, exactly, you just uh, got it exactly before as I was opening my, opening my mouth to say it. The description of Gollum in his cave is full of these kinds of pairings as well. <clears throat> he is a, he is a, 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 uh, a miserable wretch, right? Uh, he is a, he is a, a, a wretched, <clears throat> wicked creature. He's both wretched and wicked. Um, <clears throat> no, there's no question about the one, right? He's bad. He's horrible. He does terrible things, and he plans to do more terrible things. But he's also wretched, miserable, pitiable. Um, the fact that the now, Gollum, having you know, sort of, unbeknownst to himself, recruiting Bilbo's sympathy, right? Recruiting Bilbo's pity for him is one thing. Because remember, remember what the root, uh, what is it that prompts Bilbo's pity, right? What prompts Bilbo's pity? What breaks him out of that despairing, desperate mood, Matt, that you were referring to earlier on, that you were reminding us of earlier on, which was like, though, again, different in its circumstances uh, from Frodo's initial fear and despair, um, that what shakes Bilbo out of that is empathy, essentially. Um, that is, he thinks of Gollum, and he pictures Gollum's situation, right? Uh, and he uh, he imagines himself in in Gollum's place, and how horrible Gollum's life must be, and that's what prompts his pity. Um, yes, Oakwig, you're right. Luthien de Karkaroth. With Luthien and Karkaroth, we see the same thing. What does she call Karkaroth? Oh, woe-begotten spirit, she calls him, right? And she puts him to sleep uh, briefly and and characterizes that as giving him some brief release from the horror of his own existence, right? It's, um, it's, it's pretty bad. Right, uh, that's it's it's the contemplating that existence is pretty horrible. So, it's interesting to me that that is the note that is struck here, as Frodo is listening to the Whites. Right, we're getting a lot of this. Um, 
we're getting a lot of this through, you know, sort of th- essentially through Frodo's perceptions, right? Um, so it's, it would seem to me that these descriptions, these adjectives that we're getting describing the words and the singing are uh, essentially sort of hints as to what Frodo is thinking and how Frodo is feeling about this. And again, just as his being prepared for action despite his lack of hope was a good sign, his hearing the sound of the voices of the whites and not simply being overcome with horror, um, but rather perceiving the sadness of it, that too... I think, is a very good sign. And Matt, as you say, the parallel with Bilbo continues here, right? With Bilbo uh, at the end of chapter five uh, of, the, of, of The Hobbit. Um, this, his, his, his pity, his imagination uh, is, is rising. Um, out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, even the very formlessness of the stream of sad sounds is sad, right? I mean, think of this horrible, empty, disjointed life that the, or unlife, right? That the, that the whites are apparently living. Even this sense of the, the moan coming from the ground, right? That's, that's their life moaning from the ground, right? Um, Strings of words. Like, is it worse or is it better? If all it was was moaning from the ground, that doesn't impress you with a sense of the sentience and awareness of the creature moaning? I mean, quite possibly, but but again, that's not the real emphasis, right? I mean, you know, door hinges moan, right? Um, but the fact that these snatches of... these strings of words, right shape themselves, show there's still a mind, there's still an intelligence behind this misery in the midst of this horror. Um, And no matter how bad his own situation may be, no matter how imminent his own death and how terrible his end may seem to be, it's nothing on these poor creatures, right? These hideously twisted... uh, creatures. And because he hears it, right? What does he hear in those strings of words? And Tony, I agree. This is one of the great sentences in the Fellowship of the Ring. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Think about the two halves of that sentence, right? Um, The night... And notice how how this echoes the sad but horrible element of this whole scene, right? The night railing against the morning is one thing, right? Just saying like that, I mean, that sounds like a simple black and white kind of issue, right? The darkness hates the light. And so the darkness hates the morning because the morning is the end of the darkness, right? So it's just like it, like the darkness hates the light because it's evil, right? And the light is good. And it's going to lose because the morning is going to come and the darkness is going to be driven away. So, of course, the darkness hates the morning, right? But then we get... So that's kind of the horrible element, right? But then we get of which it was bereaved. Bereaved. Such an interesting word here, right? Like, it's been taken away from it. The, The night's... 
relationship with the morning, right, is like a living person's relationship with a dead relative, right? It's bereavement. It's grief. And that's different. It's not just horrible. It's also sad, right? The night has lost something. It's lost the morning. And so it's railing against it, which is also, in a sense, kind of like uh, railing against itself, right? Um, against its own situation. Um, and yes, Tony, since evil is in its nature is the absence of something good, it makes sense that the hatred of uh, that that the hatred of uh, what it's missing would be the result. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Cursing the warmth for which it hungered. And Tony, exactly what you're saying. What do we see here? The coldness desires the warmth. Well, of course it does, right? We can see in that the, the remnants poor remnants of a good and positive thing. Of course, that which is cold would like to be warm, right? That desire uh, for the warmth is a good desire. But the hunger, right? It wants to feed on it. It wants to consume it. It has this hideously self-centered desire for the warmth, right? And yet all the time that it's desiring the warmth. It is cursing the warmth that it desires. It doesn't want to desire the warmth anymore, but it can't help but desire the warmth anymore. This is both heartless and miserable. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. I, I, Matt, I agree that the hungering for the warmth, we, certainly thinking of both of Ungoliant and of of uh, Melkor's hunger and desire for the Silmarils um, and for the light, uh, is uh, the relationship between Melkor and the light is really interesting, right? And I think sort of similar. The burned hand of Melkor um, I think in the burned hand of Melkor, we can see this same kind of cursing the warmth for which it hungered kind of dynamic going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Hrothgar points out that both night and cold here in this sentence are craving something that would cause them to cease to exist, right? Yeah, if the cold is warmed, it won't be cold anymore, right? When the morning comes, the night is past. Um and yet, uh, the, you know, the, white, the whites crave an ending to their miserable existence. Yes, Hrothgar. And yet, they curse it, right? They hate it. Um, hate it because it doesn't come, um, but also hate the fact that they want it, even, it seems. Um, railing against that of which you are bereaved, right? Um, it's... Uh, yeah, that's tough. Um, yeah, both JJ and Nadvilikas at the same time said they they uh, they hate it and love it as they hate and love themselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Again, another Gollum connection, right? Um, I think we can learn a lot about, you know, this is a sort of good uh, uh, kind of pre-gaming for Gollum, right? A good little insight that will help us when we get there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, uh, Mary and I agree, there's not only hatred, but, but envy here as well, right? Um, that's the other thing, is that they, they know, the, the cold knows that it is not warm, right? The night knows that it is not light, that it is not bright, right? Um, and it wants those things, and it hates those things, and it hates itself for wanting those things. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's all very horrible and sad. So, um, the song is the next move, right? Uh, Once again, we can see the sort of struggle of wills between the Whites and Frodo, right? And I think his own reaction, the pity with which this whole passage is laced, Right, really emphasizes Frodo's positive response. Right, um, again, I think Frodo is winning here. Um, at the least, he's holding his own, and he's holding his own uh, pretty well. But then the song becomes an incantation, uh, meaning it becomes a song—the kind of song that makes stuff happen. Right, uh, not just a song about the darkness and the 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 cold and stuff like that, but something which is trying to do something to someone else. Which is why when Frodo recognizes that it's an incantation and not just a song, right, that he gets that dread in his heart. Okay, cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep under stone, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. This is a really creepy poem. Um, JJ, we'll talk about the meter in a minute. I think the meter is really interesting in this song, actually. Um, but let's let's talk about the content of it first, and then we'll come back to the meter. Cold be hand and heart and bone. First, let's notice the... As always... Um, remember my, my first rule of poetic interpretation, right? Um, and this is where I, 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 I feel that I feel that English teachers often do a disservice uh, to students. Sometimes people will talk about poetry as if it's just all about feelings. Like, how does that make you feel? Right? And I'm interested in how it makes you feel. Like, that's relevant. But that's not the first thing that you should talk about, or at least if you kind of think about that, you need to move on, right? Because what really matters is the plot, right? What is it actually saying? People sometimes will talk about poetry and forget that it has, you know, grammar and syntax. You know, it has sentences and is conveying something, in fact, right? Uh, so let's uh, so let's look at this. What is the first... Well, not quite so. I'm going to look at the first two lines. 
What is the purport of the first two lines? Uh, first of all, notice what is the uh, what is the mood of the verb of this sentence? Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. What is the mood of the verb? I don't think it is imperative. I, the be is the important thing, right? And there is an imperative sense uh, always implied in a kind of incantation, right? Um, uh, I, Erokeb, I tend to think it's subjunctive as well. Um, let the hand be cold. Let also the heart and bone be cold. Let the sleep under stone be cold. Right, which is it's it, in this context, it is like uh, imperative, right? But it's not a it's not a command. That is, um, the a command is has like that implied you, right? As the implied second person as the subject of it. Um, it he's not saying you be called, right? Um, if if he, if he were just saying that, like be called wake no more, right? That would be imperative. He would then be addressing Frodo directly, right? And he would be uh, telling him, like, ordering him to do something. But that's not exactly what he's... Again, it's, it's, it's similar. I'm, 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 I'm kind of splitting hairs here, but I think it's interesting. I think it's important, right? Um, because I don't think that you is the subject of these sentences. And it's not Frodo that he's talking to. Um... The subject of the verb be is hand and heart and bone, right? Um, it can't be indicative, Tungle, because it's not conjugated properly for indicative. You don't use be other than in, in an infinitive um, uh, in, uh, in, in the indicative. Be is, uh, it, it's got to be. When, when you're using be the, you know, in a present tense, it's got to be either uh, subjunctive or imperative. Um, and I think it's subjunctive. Again, let, may the hand, heart, and bone be cold. Let it be cold. Let it become cold, right? Um, let the sleep under stone be cold. Um, and again, that's, that's, um, that's, it's, it's still imperative in the sense of like trying to make something happening. Um, but it's not, again, it's not a command of Frodo personally. He's not saying, hey, you, Frodo, engage your will in this way. Perform this action, right? Rather, he's saying, let this state of affairs come to pass in your hand, your heart, your bone, right? Let your sleep. And first of all, I'm not even sh- Exactly. Matt, that's exactly, Matt's saying it better than I am. Um, he says, if it were imperative, it would be commanding Frodo to act. Right? That is to say, it would be it would be like trying to compel his will to perform an action. And the reason I think it's important that it's subjunctive rather than imperative is that that's not what's involved here. Um, uh, Matt, Matt says it's a command for a change of state of existence. It's an attempt to rewrite reality. Yes. Now, there is an appeal to Frodo's will here, but it's more indirect, right? Uh, the appeal to Frodo's will, or rather the attack on Frodo's will, is submit to this. Let this be, right? Let this be. Um, because he wants this to be. He is, he is uh, attempting to make this to be. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nevermore to wake on... I, sorry. Erokeb is pointing out that it's roughly equivalent to a third-person imperative in many languages. English doesn't really have that, or doesn't really use that so much, but I agree. Again, I'm not arguing against the general imperative sense. Like, it's imperative in the sense that he's wanting, he's trying to make something happen, right? Um, but again, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a command of Frodo, is the, is the, is the important point, I think. Um, Tony, exactly. What's happening is something like a perverted Ea, right? Let these things be. Remember, that's the Silmarillion translation of the word Ea. Um, <clears throat> let these things be is exactly what the uh, what the white is uh, is saying here. Um, okay. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Never more to wake on stony bed. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. We get a period. Okay, so this poem is eight lines long. We get two period, two two sentences. Right, each of the four lines: the first four lines, second four lines. The the syntax of these lines separates it into two different quatrains. Right, and um, that also fits because uh, in the black wind the stars shall die. The, notice we get a change in the mood of the verb, right? Now we're in indicative, future indicative. Now he's making a statement of fact about the future, right? He's not making a statement of fact about the future in the first four lines. He is wishing these things to be. Um, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. And then, and then, it, and then it shifts. So... Notice what's missing from those, from lines three and four. Like the subject, right? That is to say, um, never more than wake on the stony bed. Who? Sam and Mary and Pippin? Frodo? Possibly. I mean, presumably they're all involved, you know, in this incantation. I'm not saying that it's not relevant to them. But again, the interesting thing, syntactically, they're not in this sentence, right? Hand, heart, bone. Those are the things that are being described, right? Um, Never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Is this talking about death or not? Is this talking about I, 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 never more to wake? So are they going to go into oblivion, right? Yes, both J.J. and Nat Vilicus are pointing out this sounds like a description of his own existence, right? Remember the cold that is... Uh, uh, I want to make sure I get the get the phrasing right, right? Cursing, that's right. The cold is cursing the warmth for which it hungered, right? Um, cold be hand and heart and bone. They are warm, and it is he's trying to make them cold, right? If their hands, hearts, and bones are cold, and they have a they sleep a cold sleep under the stone, never more to wake. Never. Until the sun fails and the moon is dead. So until the end of Arda, right? Until the end of the world, they, w- they are never more 
to wake. Um, yeah, Matt says that uh, his incantation is writing Frodo out of his own story, uh, hence the lack of a subject, yeah. Um, this applies to sort of every... So there, there, there are two ways that I think it's sort of interesting here. One is, this applies to everybody. Does it apply to Frodo? Yeah. Does it apply to Sam and Merry and Pippin? Yeah. Does it apply to the White himself? Yeah. Right? Like, he's also reiterating his own existence and saying, you're going to be uh, like me. Um, yeah, yeah, Lincoln, exactly. I remember talking about that uh, before as well. Um that this is this is this is the curse, right? Remember all that s- sad and horrible stuff before. May you be j- exactly like me is a pretty horrible curse uh, for them to 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 put under. But I also like thinking about the not just saying, "Hey, it's you, it's them, it's me," but also, but it's it's abstract, right? It's not about people at all. It's about hand and heart and bone. Because you know what? That's all you are. Who are you? alone, yourself, and nameless. This is what you are, alone and nameless, right? Welcome to the Alone and Nameless Club, guys, right? You are nothing but a hand, heart, and bone, which is just going to lie here cold under the stone. I'm not even going to address your whole body, right? I'm not even going to... I'm just going to anatomize you um, because you are, uh, you are nameless, right? You are... You're nobody, anymore, right? You will be nobody. You're never more going to wake, but you're sleeping, but you're never going to wake, but you're not going to be oblivious, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, all, both of those things are all kind of uh, kind of involved there. Second quatrain. In the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie till the dead lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Till the dark lord. I said dead lord, didn't I? Till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Oh, dead lord kind of works too on the context. Um, in the black wind the stars shall die. Again, that, that change of the mood of the verb is a really interesting movement here. Right? And it picks up on the the concept um of the last line, Finn, exactly as you said, um, we ended with, you're never more shall you wake till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit more about the end of the world, shall we? The white seems to say. Um, In the black wind, the stars shall die. That's the end of the world, right? And And still on gold here, let them lie. Um... Who? Frodo? Let them still lie here? Um, sort of a general, let them all four still lie here? Till the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. And, uh, you know, Marianne, as you were just asking, and, and uh, as Brandon was just asking too, I'm never sure which Dark Lord he's talking about. Is this Sauron or is this Morgoth that he's, uh, that he's talking about? Um... Or it could be, uh, Pontin, as you say, it could even be the Witch King of Angmar, whom we know, uh, whom we're told sent the spirits um, into the Barrow Downs. Um, so it was at his command that these spirits entered these barrows in the first place. But I, I do tend to think that Dark Lord is probably not the Witch King of Angmar, it's probably Morgoth or Sauron. Um, I think it's 
probably Morgoth here, uh, that the Dark Lord is going to lift his hand over Dead Sea and Withered Land, which is... uh, Yeah, Darren, I, I, I tend to agree that you know, uh, the one who's going to be lifting his hand after the sun fails and the moon is dead, that this it's going to be Morgoth they're going to be fighting at the Dagor Dagorath, right? You know, at the, the Battle of Battles, at the Apocalypse. It, it's not going to be Sauron. Sauron's not going to be the big bad in, at the Battle at the End of Days, right? When it comes time for the, uh, the Middle-earth Ragnarok, it's not going to be uh, Sauron who's going to be the primary enemy. Um, uh, so I agree that it's more likely to be Morgoth. But I think it's interesting, and, you know, and Tony, I think you, you pick up on this really well. Um, it's interesting that we don't know for sure. I don't think we're even compelled to decide which one it might be. Tony says he thinks it's a general desire for the conquest of evil and any Dark Lord will do, right? Um, the one thing that... Uh, um, the one thing that leads me to hesitate over the um, sort of going all the way with any Dark Lord will do is the future indicative, right? This is... The incantation has mingled with a prophecy, right? It is... The voice is prophesying that the stars shall die in the black wind. Um, the sun's going to fail, the moon's going to die, and the stars will die. The, the stars will die in the black wind, um, and the dark lord is going to lift his hand over Dead Sea and Withered Land. That's going to happen, right? Future indicative. Let them lie. Let them lie. Back to the subjunctive, right? Let them lie, still on gold, until all that stuff happens, right? Um, so the the sort of prophecy element of it there is what kind of leads me to think that it's probably thinking specifically of events rather than uh, uh, just kind of a general uh, sort of generic conflict of evil. But um, and it is the Dark Lord Hrothgar, as you say. It's not capitalized. No capital D, capital L. um, But we do at least get a definite article, so there is that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Now, Kyle, that's a really interesting observation. Kyle says it's interesting that, you know, Frodo, thinking he had come to his final moments, was finding his own will and resolve hardening, right? And, and Marianne, by the way, you had mentioned before that it's, it's like the Battle of Malden. Yeah, exactly. The, of course, that when Sam hardens uh, in, uh, in Mordor, it's going to be a much more explicit reference to that moment in the Battle of Malden that you're remembering, Mary. But, um, but yeah, yeah, no, that same concept I think is at play here. Anyhow, um, so Kyle was saying, here's Frodo thinking he's coming to the terrible end of his road, and what does the White start singing about? But the 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 true end, right? Of all things, the the that everybody's the all of creation is on a road to a terrible end. Right, and that's uh, at least what he is predicting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, yes, Valor. Of course, yes, you're right. It's not just, it's not just Ragnarok. Um, I was thinking of Ragnarok. Um, 
not because I've seen the movie, because I haven't yet, though I really want to, um, but because um, because I've been reading Norse mythology recently, and also because the whole like big battle with uh, evil at the end, uh, the the one brief depiction that we get of that um, always sounded a little uh, Ragnaroki to me, rather than merely. Um, you know, like the, uh, the, you know, night falling on Narnia, for instance, uh, in uh, The Last Battle. <clears throat> it comes across very differently uh, in Tolkien's world. But anyway. Um, uh, anyway, okay, okay. Notice, this is one of the things that always struck me most, um, you know, years ago about this poem is the sort of the frank acknowledgement of what winning looks like for the bad guys, right? Um, <laughs> thanks, Brandon. Brandon says that Ragnaroki uh, is a great adjective. I, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of it actually. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was, that was, that was spontaneous, but, uh, but uh, I, I also, I also like that as well. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, the frank admission of the fact that when evil wins, it's going to suck for everybody, even evil people, right? I mean, it's like, congratulations, Dark Lord, you won. Here's what it looks like. Lifting your hand, right, in authority, in conquest, over a dead sea and a withered land. Congratulations. Enjoy that, right? He's not going to enjoy it. They know he's not going to be enjoying it, right? There's not, there's enjoying things is not on the table, right? And they know it's not on the table. That's why their voices are sad as well as well as horrible, right? Um, but nevertheless, it doesn't like change their minds, right? It doesn't lead them to think that maybe this whole, uh, you know, maybe they should leave this whole darkness and, and uh, cold, thing and, you know, get a better paying gig, um, they are resolved, right? They are seeking this almost out of spite, like out of that envy, right? The cold curses the warmth uh, for which it hungers um, because it is warm and it is going, it recognizes that it has something that it doesn't have. It's given up, frankly, frankly given up on getting it for itself. It doesn't want to be warmed. It just wants to make the warmth cold, right? Um, it doesn't want to improve its lot. It doesn't want... This is, this is the end of evil, right? This is, this, is what, this is the terrible end that Morgoth's road leads to, that Sauron's road following his master, right, on his, uh, uh, on his dreadful path into the void. Um, this is what Gollum's path, this is what Saruman's path, um, everybody who goes down this road, this is what the end of the road looks like, right? Lifting your hand over a dead sea and withered land. In Paradise Lost, Satan says that it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Actually, no, it's not, <laughs> right? That seems to be, I mean, there's a sense in which I think the last two lines of this poem are, I'm not saying that he was attempting to rebut Paradise Lost, but it's a kind of, uh, it serves as a kind of rebuttal, right? Um, you know, it's like, uh, okay, so uh, how's that raining in hell working out for you, 
right? Um, no, it's um, it's 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 not actually <laughs> better, right? Even to you know, and again, and this, of course, I'm thinking of uh, of Boethius, which uh, we just read in Mythgard Academy. Um, even somebody who wants power, somebody who wants pleasure, right? Somebody who wants wealth, a wicked person who does wicked things in order to get those things is not yet all bad. Even they may, they may be doing horrible things, right? In order to serve their own pleasure, in order to increase their own power. But so long as that, but there's something positive, even pleasure, even if you're taking pleasure in horrible things, the pleasure itself means you're not all the way at the bottom of the, of the, of the, of the pit, right? You still have further that you could fall from there. This is what the bottom of the pit looks like, right? When you get to this point, when what you're looking out for is just for everything else to be destroyed because you are reconciled to everything, to your own perfect and complete misery for all eternity, that's, that's the bottom, right? That's really the bottom. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly. And Lincoln, no, I don't think that Milton actually ultimately does support... I think that... I have always thought that people who think that Milton is, like, really behind Satan are missing the... I don't think Milton... I think that the... the, Here's the way I would say it. I think that many readers of Milton are bigger suckers than Milton was. I don't think he was suckered by that. He gives Satan lots of really good speeches, but I don't think at the end of the day, Milton actually buys those speeches. Um, but he does justice to him. Um, anyway. All right. Um, meter. Let's talk about meter. What's the fundamental meter of this poem? Right. Oh, and uh, Tim Duff, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, as long as you have perverted good, you're not at the bottom. Complete, uh, complete privation is the bottom of the well, right? And that's exactly what we're going for here, right? That's exactly the um, the consummation devoutly to be wished, according to the Barrow White, is privation, right? Everything being dead, everything being empty, everything everything being cold, everything being hungry and unable to be satisfied. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, yes, Eroheb, iambic tetrameter. This is an iambic, right? That's the really important thing. Um, in fact, many of the lines, not all of them, but many of the lines are extremely regular. Look at line two. And cold be sleep under stone. Under is a variation, right? And cold be... Cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep, right? All the way through there. Perfectly even I ams, right? And we get another, we get one completely uh, I, uh, completely perfect iambic line, don't we? And still on gold here let them lie. Yeah, right? Eight syllables, perfectly iambic, right? 
So, notice the one quick thing, right? There iambic, right? They are the opposite of Tom Bombadil, who is trochaic. And I think that that's not an accident, because Tom Bombadil's trochies are about to come and interrupt this miasma of despairing and horrible iams that we're getting, right? Um, now, the fun thing... Um, the fun thing about, um, about this poem, about, about, about meter, um, not Vilkia says, I wonder what this, uh, what does this say about Tolkien's opinions of iams? Now, it's not that he's anti-iam. Remember, Hobbit meter is an iambic tetrameter. The Hobbits always sing an iambic. Elvish meter is iambic. So it's not that iams are evil. And yet, there's, there's, there's a trend. Right, this really creepy poem is iambic, and remember the ring verse. Sauron's quotation is iambic, which contrasts with the generally trochaic remainder of the ring poem. Right, the the you know three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, um, and then one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, right? Really even sinister IMs at the end, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, Natvilkius, I agree. All of the evil poetry has been iambic. Now, most of the poetry, period, is iambic in English. Uh, so that's, you know, you can, you can make that argument to say, statistically speaking, most of it, most evil poetry will be iambic. But, but nevertheless, I think that it is interesting. And it, it hits me harder here because we've been immersed in trochies, right, for like a chapter and a half in the house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, we've been in a very trochaic state of mind, uh, and that's what we, I mean, I, we should still kind of have that in our heads, right? Ho, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. Uh, and th- think of the, uh, think of how the, of the, the differences, right? I had an errand there gathering water lilies. Um, how different that sounds from be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep under stone. Um, now, um, the best poetry professor I ever had in grad school, what he always used to say, and, and this is something I, that has uh, really influenced me throughout my poetic interpretation career. He used to say that sometimes people, when they're talking about poetry, talk about a variation in the meter, right? Um, Like they would say that under stone, for instance, is a variation in the meter, or cold in the first line, right? Because the stress is on the first syllable. Cold is obviously stressed, right? So the rest of it is perfectly iambic. Be hand and heart and bone but cold at the beginning. If it's iambic, the first syllable should be unstressed, like in the second line, and cold be sleep, right? But the f- but we get a stress on the first syllable, which is a variation from the iambic meter. <clears throat> the, but the thing that my old professor always used to say is meter is invariable. Don't ever talk about it varying, because it doesn't. The whole point of what a great poet does in a metrical poem 
is that first, like, the poem starts the metronome going in your head. You can hear it, and it's invariant, right? And cold be sleep under stone. That doesn't mean the poem itself is invariant, right? But the meter never varies. So what happens is, where are those moments when the poet, when the natural inflection of the English words differ from the meter, right? When do we get things that we, that are, you know, if once our ears pick up on the, on, on the rhythm, once we get the rhythm, then the poet, by, by altering, from, by, by, by creating a, uh, a difference, uh, a gap between the actual stress of the lines and the that it was the ictus and the stress, my old professor always used to say. The ictus is that means the metronome beat, right? The stress is how the words actually come out, right? Um, where there's a, a gap between those, where there's a strain between those, is where are the words that really jump out to us, right? Um, and that's that that's what oh, a way that the poet will give us a cue to pay attention to stuff. So for instance. The first, the fact that the first word of the poem is cold, we'd probably notice that anyway, right? But he makes bloody sure we recognize it, right? That we hear it. Because that, because that word, for the first line and a half, that one word is the only moment when the stress of the line differs from the beat of the meter, right? So that word cold just rings, in those first two lines. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Notice how cold the second time does fit with the meter. But it's hard. Notice how I kind of stressed that a little bit more. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep, right? We wouldn't have that. Leave out the first one, right? It wouldn't make sense, but I could just leave it out, right? Be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. The word cold doesn't jump out. Right? And it's not just the repetition. It's the fact that we get that bell note at the beginning. Cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep. We can't not stress it, right? So and it so it it underscores the repetition there, right? Um cold is the dominant sense there, uh, in the first. What's the other place where those lines differ, where the stress of those lines differs from the meter? Under. Right and cold be sleep. You can't do that. You just can't read English and fit the stress or fit the 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 meter. Right and cold be sleep under stone. It doesn't work. Right and cold be sleep under stone. What's the effect? There's a syllable. So like, how does he achieve that effect? He achieves that effect not by putting in something extra, but by skipping something. There should be an unstressed syllable. And cold be sleep under stone. Only seven syllables in that line. We need an eighth syllable to be perfect iambic tetrameter. Right? The syllable that's missing is an unstressed syllable between sleep and und. Right? Um, which means that just the natural stress of the line, the natural, str- the natural stress of the, of the words compel us to pause there to pause where that extra beat should be, and cold be sleep under stone, right? Uh, Which, again, draws our attention to where they're sleeping, right? 
It's the fact that they're sleeping. It's that they're sleeping under the stone, which, of course, also brings us back to the cold, which the meter stressed at the very beginning, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you see how that works? So this is, this is what's fun, right? This is what's fun, is sort of seeing how, because this, this, this variation, any poet with any kind of, now sometimes a poet doesn't, like varies from, you know, it has the stress differ from the meter all over the place just because the poet doesn't have a very good ear. That's not Tolkien. Tolkien's ear is awesome, right? He has a very carefully attuned ear and he loves rhythm. Uh, and uh, he loves rhythm even in his prose, right? Much less in his verse, or much more in his verse, rather. Uh, so, um, now, I'm not saying that every variation of the stress from the meter is necessarily deeply significant, right? But it kind of is, actually, in the sense that it has to jump out at you. It makes you pause. It makes you stumble. It makes you stress things. And we should pay attention uh, to where that happens, because Tolkien's ear would have told him that, that he knew that was happening, Right, it's one of the things that he's going for when he constructs these lines. Nevermore to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Uh, the fourth line, Tarlonio was just talking about that. The fourth line is weird. Let's look at that. First of all, notice how long that line is. Hang on, let's count. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. That's 11 syllables in that line, right? Um, that is whacked, right? There are three extra syllables in that line. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Well, where are the extra ones, right? Okay. Sometimes poets, really good poets will do awesome things with this kind of thing. My favorite example of this is um, uh, is in uh, 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 John Donne, uh, his uh, Better My Heart, Three-Person God, um, where he has a line which has, because uh, it's talking about his own pride, uh, this this one line, and it's 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 an iambic pentameter, I believe, but there are 11 syllables. There's an extra syllable, and it doesn't scan right. And the extra word, like, it, if you there's the one syllable that if you take it out, it's the line is perfect and and goes and guess what the syllable is I right because it's anyway, I mean how cool is that right uh, really really great poets uh, do awesome things uh, with this kind of variation in, in meter where's the extra yes Erocheb I totally I totally agree never never is obviously extra. Right, it's extra in the sense that he's just said it. Right, we don't need it, uh, and metrically, I mean, it's an entire extra foot that's thrown in there, and it's clear that it's extra because the line keeps on coming. Right, take it out. Right, never more to wake on stony bed till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Now that's still one syllable extra, but that would sound much more normal, wouldn't it? Never more to wake on stony bed till the sun fails and the moon is dead. It's still an irregular line, but it, but it, but it works, right? Um, uh, but the white didn't do that, right? We get that extra foot, and we get that extra foot for a reason. Why? It's like the the white is 
messing up his own verse, right? Why, uh, because he wants to repeat the never, right? He is willing to repeat the never, even at the cost of screwing up the, the meter of the poem, much worse in that line than anywhere else, right? Even though it's completely extraneous, he's going to repeat the never, right? Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. Um, yeah. Um, just a few other, uh, um, a few other, uh, 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 points from the other lines. Again, just listen to the, listen to those places of variation, right? In the black wind, the stars shall die and still on gold here, let them lie. Listen to those two lines. What words jump out at you? In the black wind, the stars shall die and still on gold here, let them lie. Think of just the rhythm now. Rhyme is another thing, and I agree that die and lie are important because they're right. We don't, we don't ignore rhyme, right? Rhyme is an important tool, t- too, but I, I want to talk about rhythm primarily. In those two lines, where is the only place that the stress of the line differs from the meter? Iambic tetrameter. In the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold, here let them lie. Black wind. Absolutely. Black wind. In the black wind. Really, the whole, that whole phrase. After in the black wind, it's smooth sailing. Now, several of you are saying, like, still jumps out, gold jumps out, a d- in the sense that they're stressed syllables. Yes. And by the way, that's a whole other element, right, of the, of the application of meter, right? Which words you choose to make stressed in the line is important. And again, sometimes um, <clears throat> the... Uh, uh, sometimes a great poet can do really fun things with that. My favorite example of that one is Shakespeare um, in Macbeth. People so often don't read Shakespeare like it's poetry, but it is, and often you get really awesome effects. Like, for instance, Macbeth's famous line, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. According to the meter, where is the stress? The stress is on the ands, right? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, right? Um, Normally, we wouldn't stress the ands. If we're just saying that in prose, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And too many actors just do the thing in prose, right? Uh, In sort of dramatic prose, but it's not prose. Macbeth's stress is on the ands, because that's what he's bothered by. It's not tomorrow that bothers him, it's the ands. And tomorrow, and tomorrow. It's It's the creeping on its weary pace from day to day that he's concerned about, right? Anyway. Um, so you're right that the stressed syllables are important. Just read the stressed syllables, right? For, starting in the second half of the line. Stars, die, still, gold, let, lie. It tells the story, right? So you're right to focus on those. The, the stress, the, the, the very um, coordination of the stress and the meter uh, really, really drive those home, Right? 
but the variation from the meter, where the meter is in, is at stress with the stress, intention with the stress, right, is at the beginning, in the black wind. The stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie. Um, black wind. Black wind is spondaic, right? Um, that it, spondaic just means two stressed syllables in a row, right? A foot with, instead of having unstressed, stressed, or stressed, unstressed, just has stressed, stressed. Remember, Tom Bombadil's lines tend to start with spondy. Old Tom Bombadil. Three stressed syllables in a row is a, is a very common pattern for the beginning of Tom Bombadil's lines. Um, I had an errand there. Um, in the black wind, the stars shall die. You can Black wind, right? That phrase, black wind. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's like, Tungle, it's like sleep under stone. We get two stress syllables in a row there. But again, notice how the effect is different. In sleep under stone, the effect is to make us pause because it's missing a syllable. Right there, there kind of should be an unstressed syllable there, but there isn't, so it makes us pause. And cold be sleep under stone, right? This doesn't make us pause. Instead, it makes it like puts little flashing lights. I guess they'd be black lights, right, around the phrase "black wind," right? It really wants us to think about that black wind. In the black wind, the stars shall die. Now, why? What is the effect of that, right? Um, well, the effect of that is to notice, hey, we're not just talking about the end of the world, people. We're talking about the end of the world, right? But that doesn't, but please do not think I'm just talking about the world winding down in a natural way, right? Like this is just the way things were always meant to be. Oh, no, no. This is evil winning, right? Why are the stars dying? Not just because they've come to the end of their natural life, but because they're being killed and consumed by the black wind. Right? The night is finally going to be victorious over the light. The cold is finally going to be victorious over the warmth. And it's everything's going to be cold and everything's going to be dark and everything's going to suck for everybody. That's what's going to happen. Right? Um, and that's the emphasis. Right? So the emphasis is on this. Which, and it's not made the subject. Right? It's not the subject of the verb. Right? He, he could do that. Right? He could be like, and the black wind shall kill the stars. Right? But he doesn't do that. Right, um, in the black, he, he he just in the black. The star shall die in the black wind. It's an adverbial phrase, right? The star shall die, in in what manner? By what agent shall the stars die? In the black wind, right? That is that that, that is the circumstances under which the stars will die, right? So it seems like syntactically, uh, you know, grammatically, it's not really strongly enforced. But the meter makes sure that we really pay attention to that, right? In the black wind. The stars. Now, keep listening. In the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. What do you hear in those last few lines? What jumps out from the meter? Again, by jumps out, I primarily mean how does it, where does it differ? Right? Where do we hear those, dis- those discrepancies? Dead sea. Yes. Yes. Dead sea. Another piece of spondy there at the end over dead sea and withered land. Dark Lord is another one, right? Notice how these are all working the same. Black Wind, Dark Lord, Dead Sea. In fact, those three spondaic phrases tell the story of themselves, right? Black Wind, Dark Lord, 
Dead Sea, right? And Withered Land. Withered Land is interesting. Um, Technically, that scans over Dead Sea and Withered Land. Those last four syllables are iambic, neatly iambic. And yet, withered, by itself, the word withered is trochaic. And notice, go up to the the really even, look at the lines where, 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 where the Barrow White is doing really even iams. What do you notice about the words? Be hand and heart and bone and cold, be sleep under stone. The stars shall die and still on gold, here let them lie. What do you notice about that? Every single word in those really regular bits, Villori exactly, are monosyllabic, right? He is arranging these one-syllable words to make the iambic pattern. Um, withered is a two-syllable word, which is intrinsically trochaic. Stress on the first syllable, uh, and then on the second syllable. Again, it fits, but it doesn't fit. It, it doesn't fit as tightly over Dead Sea and Withered Land. Withered, you can It's hard not to say the word withered again. The natural stress of that word is sort of at variance with the. Uh, um, with the, the 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 pattern, not the rhythm exactly, but with the pattern of it, um, and thus I can't help but stress the uh, the withered, the first syllable of withered, um, a little bit more strongly. Um, yeah, Matt, goodness, you're right. I didn't even really notice that. I mean, I was noticing the thing about the IMs, but there's a pretty short list of two-syllable words in this entire poem. Under, never, twice, stony, and withered. That's it. Under, never, stony, withered. Golly. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Over, over dead sea and withered land. Now, over. Oh, sorry. Over is another two-syllable word. Um, yeah, yeah. Over dead sea and withered land. The other reason that I'm that that last line, the stress of that last line is a little bit more trochaic to me, is over as well. Over Dead Sea. It's different from starting with a stress like cold. Right? Over Dead Sea and Withered Land. Apart from the fact that it's not long enough, that last line could be a Tom Bombadil line. Right? Over Dead Sea and Withered Land. Again, it's kind of hard to separate the content of it, right? Tom Bombadil wouldn't be talking about that. Um, but, um, uh, but it, uh, it's interesting that it closes off with this sort of trochaic feel. But again, the emphasis of it is that, uh, that, that last line, it makes that last line really ring, 
right? Um, it's if we are lulled, as I think we are lulled, by the stars shall die and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. You just read those last two lines, and I can't help but hear, till dark Lord, dead sea, withered land. Right, the main point just are are heavily emphasized by the way in which it breaks away uh, from the meter there at the end. Okay, all right. So I got a little bit more detailed about the meter, but isn't this? But I thought this actually was a really great illustration. Isn't that fun? Right, I'm telling you, meter is so much fun to look at, and the more you can train your ear, the more you can practice your ear to just hear that metronome going. Right, so that the variations, the way that the stress doesn't fit the meter, that that kind of jumps out at you. It just gives you a whole new sort of set of tools, right? A whole new set of observations uh, to bring. Uh, you know, you get the what does the rhythm emphasize? What does the rhyme emphasize? What does the what is the content emphasizing? The this sort of overall structure. Um, all of it gives us like more data. Uh, to use to draw some really interesting conclusions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Okay. It's late. So I... Um, yeah. We'll have to wait on the disembodied threat uh, when the hand creeps. So we'll start with the creeping hand next time. <clears throat> and then pay attention to what happens immediately after the disembodied hand comes creeping in. Uh, one of the things that I didn't notice for years about this scene. Um, but, um, all right. But I think we're going we're gonna to stop there because it's, um, uh, it's... And, yeah, and so next week, next week, my plan and hope is that our field trip next week will be to the Barrow Downs. We're gonna we're gonna look at the Barrow Downs. Having seen the inside of the Barrow and how this how this plays out, um, we should be able to get to Tom Bombadil's intervention next week. Um, I want to do a tour in game of the uh, uh, of the Barrow Downs and look inside some of the barrows and see those things uh, those things working out there and uh, in how they're doing how they adapt that stuff in the game world. Um, so field trip time tonight. We're gonna we're gonna continue. So so tonight I want to continue our look at the North Downs, which we've been doing, and um, and then we will uh, uh, again hopefully get to the Barrow Downs uh, next time. So exactly, Rothgar. We can't exactly go to the Barrow Downs before we deal with the creeping hands in the text. I totally agree with you there. Um, all right. So I'm gonna say goodbye to Twitter folks. Uh, thanks for those of you who've been joining me on the Twitter broadcast. So I'm going to say goodbye to them. Thank you. And all right. So we're going to continue here on Twitch. Everybody stretch out and get ready to go here. All right. Evening, everyone. Okay, so I think I'm going to I'm going to stable master it up to Esteldine again. Yeah, sounds good. Which is right where we. Uh, took off last time. I want to head out the other side of Esteldine and start looking at the, see how much of the, uh, of the the eastern end of the North Downs we can get through tonight. 
gosh, should be good for that today. All right. So, uh, um, Valori JJ was asking about, he's like, I got a level 23, uh, who needs to go up. Can they, uh, how would you how would you recommend? Uh, well, I think that? you have to be level twenty five to purchase a stable ride, unless you use a mithril coin to find the stable. Okay. okay. So they can spend a mithril coin, get up there with the stable, or um, you can also piggyback. You can go from Trestle Bridge and Trestle Bridge to Estaline if you've already found those locations. Right. <laughs> Which at level twenty three is unlikely. Uh, no, I did it at fourteen actually. So. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. Wow, I just like jumped up on top of the door there. We're trapped forever. Yeah. We'll never get out of this room. <laughs> Man, I haven't analyzed poetry like that in a long time. That was so metal, though. This is such a metal passage. <laughs> yeah. Now, do we know if have any artists taken that one as well? I know Christopher Lee did that one for the... For the for the, the one of the one of the Rivendell ones done by the Scandinavian group. Which ones? Um, which, which which scene exactly? Are you talking uh, about artists doing the, that poem? Uh, Christopher Lee recites all the poems in oh, one album right, right, right. of I what think in an evening in Rivendell or yes yes yeah yeah um, you, you watch True Terror. It's Christopher Lee <laughs> reciting that poem. I tell you yeah. Yeah. Oh man, uh, I just forgot. I I always have this problem. What's that? You don't have it. I don't have it because I keep forgetting. I'm like, oh, I'll just use a mithril coin, but I keep forgetting that my mithril coins don't aren't account based, but uh, server based. Well, we can ride up there. I think I might have to. Yeah, that'll help out the twenty something guy. That's true. All right, let's go for it then. Should we meet up at the crossroad make sure everybody's there? I think yeah. a lot of people went on ahead, though. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, oh, you, you mithril coin, JJ, that's good. Oh, no, I was... Yeah. No, I'm waiting on you. Okay, no, the level All 23 right. uh, mithril uh, okay. it. It's It's still worth getting. It's much easier than riding up by yourself, especially if you're under level. Yeah. Yeah, darn it. Do you have the journeyman riding trade, or are you stuck on the slow version? Um, I don't even remember. <laughs> actually, I could. I, I think I could. Uh, I think I could uh, worst eat it. Actually, I have a mustard to Estel. I just got a saw. Oh, it was a gift of the Valar. So now I have mustard to Estaline. Is that just me, or can I take other people? I forget what the warden rules are. Uh, I have no idea. Me neither. I I've have never not played uh, a warden before. I picked a poor class to go ahead and. <laughs> Yeah, I I've never I've never wardened either. Um, hang on a second. Do I have? Do I have a? I do have a war steed. Hang on a second. Let's do that. At least would be a little bit faster. Yeah. Okay. First time this character's ever. I'm getting uh, tutorials now. Oh man! 
At least they didn't port you off to Rohan. Yeah, exactly. Make me run around in circles and uh, go through gates. Play jousting with the dummy. Yes. I gotta admit, that was fun the first time I did it. But, uh, oh, oh well, I'll never forget the first time I did it in that stream I did a year ago. Yeah, I remember. When I was lagging so terribly, I couldn't even see the gates. I think it was lagging so badly, I, got, I couldn't watch it. I got kicked off or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I, uh, my van died, so I had to have a rental. And uh, the rental turned corners about as fast as one of those roars to <laughs> <laughs> not recommend the Dodge Grand Caravan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that's I, immediately I, what I was thinking of. I'm just kind of like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I think if you're, if you're in a rental car and... It's turning corners and making you think of a of a of a Lotro war steed. That's really certainly a bad sign. Yeah. I really had to just, you know, ram my foot down on the gas to make it go two inches. <laughs> it's get up and go, got up and went. Yeah. Hey, I'm catching up with you after oh, stopping and, okay. and redoing yeah, if you my overtake steed. Me, so. I'll just zoom ahead. Alright. Yeah, that's cheating. I don't care. Boy, I see that they have, like, defaulted to the, uh, you know, my little Warsteed panel right smack in the middle of my screen, which is... Oh, yeah, that's one of the first things I fix is... Yeah, I usually do, too, but... All right, I'm going to go on ahead and meet everybody. I don't want to run into trees while I'm doing it. Um... Okay. So anyway, all right. So let's do a little review. So um, we looked at a gazebo. We looked at a gazebo. So Dime was posting, and she just mentioned this as well in the Discord chat, um, that uh, she found the other artichoke gazebo, oh. <clears throat> uh, which is up. It is near as I was. I thought it was my. So my, my memory was serving me correctly in recalling uh, that it was. Um, that it was up near the um, the giant that where you go to find that Hobbit's pack up in the Brandy Hills. Um, that mm. that's uh, that it's it's yes, it's, that it's up Lone near Island there. That you know, I, I was I went all over that place trying to figure out why that was there and what the quests were. There was nothing there. Yeah. So it's um. So frustrating. Yes. Yes. Uh, now Tony Mead was noticing that the architecture in uh, uh, in Trestle Bridge is very Tudor. Yes, it is, yes, Tony, and that's timbers. and that's a, a really important point. Actually, the the sort of that that Tudor architecture is very characteristic of the Brelands. So in mm-hmm. the game, they have associated that particular architectural style with the human cultures that predate the uh, the Numenorians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will become important before too long. Um, it looks a lot like England too, though, where you have like your Roman ruins next to yes. your medieval castles, next to your yes. Tudor pubs and your Victorian shop windows. Yeah, and I, I really do like the sort of consistency that we get, uh, you know, like through a lot London of London or stuff. Oxford or all those other places. Yeah.
trying to get cute and cutting corners with my uh, war steed here, which is always a little risky. Oh, you're going to fall in the river, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I made it across the trestle span without falling, which was a victory. So now let me no, see the, if the, I can... The next one coming up is, is harder. <laughs> it is. If you don't hit the angle exactly right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Hang on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... I'm going to try to cheat here. I'm going to try to straighten it out in advance. I'm not going to follow the road. All right. Even your keel, son. Even your keel. I'm feeling confident. Here we go. All right. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally got this. No problem. <laughs> okay. All right. Almost to SLD now. All right. All right. Okay, now I'm so, going across fields and hopping fences. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was feeling a little, uh, just a little intimidated by the English English majors who remember things like iambic ten tetrameter and stuff like that, <laughs> where the only one I can remember is pentameter for the Shakespeare deal. Yeah. But I'm sitting here, you know, being, you know, I studied music in high school and some of college, and I'm sitting there going, like, what instruments would you categorize, would you use to characterize each of those uh, meters? And Tom always reminds me of um, this sort of squeaky fiddle going up and down and trilling all over the place. And mm -hmm. Just sort of being a dancing, dancing violin piece, while the the whites just sound like a drum beat. Yes, yes. There, I mean, it, it's... Well, I mean, it's an incantation, right? So it's supposed to have that kind of effect, that kind of a uh, chant. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's 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 much more, much more chant-like. Certainly, much less dancey, obviously, than Tom Bombadil. Oh, hang on. Yeah, it's it's more Philip Glass, Koyani, Scotsy kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you just breezed past us, man. You I go? did. Yeah. Sorry, I stopped. Right. So I, I realized I was reaching for. Um, that I, I I normally have the you know like the skid to a stop command on the war steed. Oh yeah, no, I had the same problem. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking. I normally about. have that keyed on one on my uh, on my yes. my thing. So I was hitting one and I wasn't stopping and I couldn't figure out why. Yeah, no, you were having that. I know I can't come back. I don't know how it works. <laughs> exactly. Goodbye, folks. So I just dismounted. That took care of the problem. Okay, all right, here we are. So, once again, we are here in Estildeen, which still does not have any iconography on its arches, which still kinds of bothers me. Uh, but the, the one theory that I have about this is really, it's, it's not a theory, it's more of a joke, uh, which is we were kind of joking about the fact that Estildeen is supposed to be like a secret fortress, um, so, but it's plainly visible from almost every angle. Um, yeah. But maybe, maybe that was the nod towards secrecy, right? By by not putting the Arnorian star in the stonework, uh, they, they they were they were keeping a low profile. You see. Well, this is just an ordinary colonnade. Nothing. Exactly right. Yeah, nothing to see here. No, this is this is not a, this is not uh, you know an Arthurian outpost or, or anything. You know, this is just a. Built by some, you know, there's nobody here but uh, some totally generic and totally not Arthurian uh, uh, folks. They filed the serial numbers off. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, Tony's wondering: Is it possible that it was built by the Dunedain after the fall of Arnor? It is possible. You know that this was sort of designed to be a secret fortress um, after everything else was already a ruin. There are two things that kind of disincline me to that view, though. One is the fact that 
the ruins just look older. I mean, this does not look like... Well, okay. The fact that the architecture is less interesting in in uh, Esteldine could be, Tony, an argument in favor of what you were just saying, because, of course, the, the more recent, the newer would be the would be the the worse, right? You would expect the older architecture to be greater, bigger, fancier. Um so uh you know that 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 could kind of work. Um but I don't know. I don't know. It, it also sort of shows this like uh I don't know fatalist humility. They're not calling on, on any kings to uh, defend, they're not calling on any gods to save them. They're just—it's just there. It's just I mean, there, there's that yeah. one one bit in the corner, the, the one bit on the lintel up there. But yeah, which is which is buried. Characteristic, right? I mean, like it's—it's it's been built over. It looks like, doesn't it? Yeah, it almost looks like it's a different stone. Yeah, well, and anyway, certainly, I mean, the person who designed the arch above the door, which has the stars in it. Um, certainly didn't dis- also design this other thing or did so extremely incompetently. In fact, I think that whoever it was who designed this other, um, you know, sort of big old, like, portico lintel across the top there has a lot to answer for because they're also keeping us from being able to see that image up there perfectly. And It's like Roman Reconstruction. Exactly, it does. It's definitely, yeah. like, it's like they got rid of all the art of Greece and it all it's all functionality and it's all badly done and more for uh, right function than style and it's they lost all their artisans. Yeah, yeah. And you could you could tell they put that up there, going you know forget the stars, we need archers up there. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yes, there is a. There does seem to be something sort of architecturally and artistically tone deaf about that blockage of the stars. I, I really hope I'm not insulting some developer by saying this. By the way, <laughs> well, no, because I mean, see, like, notice over the crafting hall, right there, you yeah. get the the original, which also has the Arnorian scepter at the top. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a crafting hall, and we don't have one bit of art around it. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's head up th- this way. We got over here before. Mm-hmm. Kingsfell. No, and I'm kicked off again. Why does this always happen? Oh, no. Did you, did you, did you, did you lose your link? Yeah, I lost it again. I don't know why this always happens. It's like I'm fine and then just no particular reason. I went through that whole thing with you guys with all the different layers and everybody porting in and out. Huh. No problem. It's just... Crossing the boundary is what did it? Yeah, crossing the boundary is what did it. Kicked me right off. Go on ahead. I'll catch up. I always do. Hang on a second. I was just thinking about something which we didn't think about before. And that is uh, the name. We didn't talk about that. Kingsfell? Kingsfell. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, like they lost or something. <laughs> well, it could mean one of two things. Felt like a, felt like a geographical location. Well, exactly. It could be either one, right? It could be, it could be, like the place where the kings fell, 
But it seems more likely to be the fell of the kings, right? Yeah. Um, but when you look at it and you think about, you know, we've been all over this. We've we've uh, we've we've been with a fairly fine-tooth comb over the whole King's Fell region. We didn't look at every single farm, but apart from that, you know, we we, we certainly looked at every ruin in the King's Fell region. And the thing that... The thing that interests me there is that why were these fells, particularly the fells of the king? Why, why, Why would they have been named that? Why was the king anywhere around there? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be much of a reason for that. I can't believe I just blew past the stable master in Estelding without even introducing myself, by the way. Um, I'll mark it on your to-do list. Yeah. Oh, man. That's pretty uncharacteristic. Oh, it's because I was hurtling past on a war steed unable to stop. Yeah. Yeah. That's why that happened. You're doing your little Annie Oakley routine there. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a, looking at the lay of the land, it almost looks like this is just land owned by the king that he that, that or the kings that no one really planned anything to do with. It's just one of those, hey, don't touch yeah. it, says kind of thing. Um, the the grassy area beyond it. Right. Hang on a second. So someone is just asking what what exactly a fell is, and I'm trying to remember the line. It's in it's in a poem. Uh, uh, I can look that up real quick. It's in... Nah, I don't want to screw up the line. But it's in the dwarf poem in The Hobbit. Ah. Uh, there it is. Yes. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. Uh, so a fell would be a, uh, like a, uh, and Natvilkis remembered it. Um, uh, a fell would be like a, uh, a high, like a highland forest, essentially. Which is then especially odd because King's Fell is not a fell. In fact, it's a, you, it's kind of like a down, right? Or the Troll Fells north of Rivendell. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. The Troll Fells, which you'll notice that a synonym for Troll Fell is essentially Ettenmore, right? Uh-huh. Those words are kind of synonymous. Oh, more, yeah. Yeah, so like a moor and, and moors and fells are, are, are sort of similar. Moors usually imply sort of a marshland. Or, yeah... Marsh grassland is a is a more. Yeah, yeah. Certainly high, high and high and barren, Matt. Yes, exactly. Um, which again, none of it really seems to fit the like wide expanse of farmland, which is what is called Kingsfell. Um, oh, we got a sentry up there on the rock. Yes, where up up uh, up high? Up here. Oh, up there. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I never noticed that dude either. Me neither. Oh, and there's another one on the other side. Stands to reason. Yeah, yep. there he is. Well, maybe it's secret just because of their accuracy. Yeah, but they yeah. have to pretty much shoot everybody from there because you come around yeah, the corner. Yeah, they got a good view. Yeah, no, that's good. 
nice to see rangers actually doing things for themselves. That's right. It's very <laughs> proactive of them. <laughs> ah. I'm uh, glad. Rather, than, rather just less passive than they usually are. Right. I guess, like, yeah, standing sentry duty is not exactly active, no, is it? But, oh, another one. Yes. Now, this is the guy, of course, you get lots of quests from this dude. Yeah. Melfinder. Yeah, what is it? Yes, Melfinder. Um, and there's that guy. We got a nice clear day. Great view over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do, see, I do see some sort of swampy half lakes over there. Uh, where? Down just below, so the little oh, yeah. lakes. Oh yeah, those yeah yeah there are. Not quite yeah, a it, not quite a tarn, because no, it's down quite. in the lowland. I like tarns. Um, it's, like, it's like a mud puddle from here. Yeah, from here. Of course, straight in front of us there in the pass in the mountains <laughs> is <imposing>. uh, <laughs> pretty impressive. Boy, I remember the first day I saw that when I was in, with Grifflet. I think I must have... Okay, no. The reason I never noticed it before was because I had my graphics low when I was like actually doing the Completionist North Downs uh, with my lore master. Um, my graphics were fairly low, so I couldn't see it from here. Uh, and I had just never looked up and noticed it when I was nearby because I just never did. But it's huge. That's, of course, the gate to Angmar. Looks like the Cumberland Gap, Virginia. Yeah, and we'll we'll get closer to there and see. But just look at the walls of mountains with that one sharp cleft in now, it there. Is this a Boxton Valley here? Um, a Box Canyon or something? Well, sort of. I mean, it's... I, I never know whether it's topographically accurate or whether the developers are doing that to keep the, the land separate. Yeah, well, it's, <clears throat> you know... Six of one, half a dozen of another, but... <laughs> Probably. Uh, yeah, yeah. Back to Kingsfell. Um, uh, Matt is uh, suggesting that it could be land held by the king, you know, rather than held by a vassal, like, you know, d designated as the king's land. Um, and it's true, it's... Well, it's close to Fornos, but it's not that close to Fornos. Mm -hmm. I'm not really... I'm not really sure. Um, We're still in Rudar's territory, though, right? Yeah! I mean, Rudar started back here where I still have... I see we haven't been on this server since we were at Minas Run, because I see I still have quest rings out there in Minas Run. Um, <laughs> so right where my quest rings are on my map is where we saw the beginning of the Rudaran uh, ruins. And then they stretch certainly all north of the road and around where the dwarves were. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we had the one gazebo by the artichoke people, who I can't help but notice that the artichoke gazebo is right, right next to the word kings fell on the map. So, um, yeah. 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 Which king? <laughs> That's the question. Yeah, I suppose it is, isn't it? could conceivably be the king of Rudaur, but you'd think that they wouldn't keep calling it that at this point. I don't see him as an artichoke kind of guy either. Yeah, even, probably even not. Even pre his, uh, his pine tree and uh, yeah. scepter interest. What's that over there? To the, to the that southeast? Is, that is uh, an orc and goblin 
army amassing itself. Remember the the, the rope bridge that we can go on when we right. go past Trestle Bridge? Yes. It's all yeah. connected. Right, it connects down in there, and I know there's the big camp down there, but is that is that a ruin sticking up above the rocks over up there? Yeah, it sure looks like a ruin. I don't know if we can get to it, but it's there. And we'll have to we'll have to check that one out. Yeah, let's go see. let's go see. Okay. Though first I think we Tempting though it is to just skip it. I think we shouldn't skip it. Okay. You know well, what I'm talking about, right? So, which? Around to the left here. Um, refresh my memory. <laughs> These dudes. Oh, oh, those guys. Yeah, the Earthkin. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So, so these guys, um, these guys are, are, are not the greatest lore moment in Lotro, but just kind of accepting them here. I'm always tempted to make exceptions for the Earthkin, um, but what are they? Giants, right? I, I mean, obviously. They're giants. Sort of lesser giants, but they're giants. And we come across this village and find that these are peaceful giants, and there are, like, non-peaceful giants also here. Um, Scratching their butts. Yeah. <laughs> Which is significant, right? Because, I mean... There's a certain subset of NPCs in Lotro which will stand around and scratch their butts, right? Like, they tend to be, like, orcs, barbarians, like... Trolls. Trolls, yeah. yeah. Um, you won't generally see that happening in, say, Rivendell. <laughs> or, yeah, or Lothlorien. Right, exactly. Um, so... I think... First of all, you know, one thing that I would say about the Earthkin is that I think it's the impulse is interesting, right? The impulse to add giants. Um, we get giants in the mountains, right? Like the giants of the Misty Mountains. Mm-hmm. And those are we semi-canonical, right? Because we've got we've got stone giants in the mountains, right? Uh, you know, they're like sort of presumably the same giants that were chucking rocks around Thorin and company in the Hobbit. In the um, battle. Exactly. Um, however, you know, one to me, one of the most interesting things, and it's it was uh, something that I was really enjoying watching when we were talking about the treason of Isengard in the last Mythgard Academy class, is that, that... I mean, first of all, the objective question, why are there no giants in Middle-earth, in the Lord of the Rings? Like, why are there no giants in the Lord of the Rings? Well, there's never any reference to it, like, any serious reference to a giant. Yeah. Um, and, um... Why? Like, why not? It, it seems, actually, when you think about it, a really peculiar kind of omission, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, giants just like are fairies, just like how he mentioned, uh, a, you know, yeah. the hobbits having a fairy wife back then. He just sort of, I don't know. He seemed to sort of, you almost feel like Tolkien just sort of wanted to leave the Victorian beasties back in the Victorian era and just right not bring back over here. Sure, but like a, giants, a though. I mean, giants are really standard folklore creatures. You know, I, thought, I mean, didn't he make reference that giants are one of the few mythologies, like really? Um, crucial to England or something like that? Did well, giants like that? are very... Because, um, yeah, you have, like, uh, Gog and Magog and... Uh, not to mention the... The, the bully the, boys. The real, it, I, I, I had to read a lot of Inklings and 19th century literature before I came to appreciate the role of Jack the Giant Killer mm-hmm. in, like, 19th and early 20th century English culture. I mean, like, it's... It's like everybody's favorite, you know, fairy tale. Um, Jack the Giant Killer is very iconic in, you know, 19th and early 20th century English culture. That becomes really clear by the references to it and the kind of references to it. <laughs> yeah, same as Roald Dahl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, point is... There's no real a priori reason why there shouldn't be giants in Middle-earth. In fact, if anything, I find it surprising that there aren't giants. Giants, for instance, are far more staple features of folklore and fairy tale traditions than dragons are, frankly. Um, There are way more giant stories than there are dragon stories. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Um... But yet we we get dragons in Middle Earth, and we don't get giants. Or I, I mean, I know they're in the Hobbit, and yes, Brick Tales. There is that, of course, the reference of Gandalf wanting to find a more or less decent giant uh, to block up the 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 dra- the Goblin's Tunnel. Um, yes. But that again, that's in the Hobbit. He makes the mm-hmm. what what is clearly the conscious choice to write giants out of the Lord of the Rings. We don't, we don't get the giants anymore. You know, remember the, the difference between the stone giants lobbing rocks and, um, Carothras, right? The spirit of the mountain with whom they interact there in, uh, in the fellowship of the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that was really cool in the treason of Isengard is that that impulse, that impulse to write giants out, like the cutting of giants out of, Middle-earth lore doesn't happen right away, right? Exactly. As Brandon was saying, as was recalling from our discussions in the Treason of Isengard, um, Treebeard was originally a giant, like not an ent, but just a, a giant, like a, a normal, giant. a proper giant. Um, and he was he was a proper giant for a while through several drafts of the story. Um, so giants don't truly get removed from the Lord of the Rings world, until Treebeard becomes an ent, you know, until he becomes a uh, a, tree a tree man. guy, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a, a tree man instead of a tree man, um, <laughs> which is what he calls giants um, uh, at first. But anyhow, um, which of course originally just means men as tall as trees. Anyhow, so the so all this is is as much as to say, I think that the Earthkin are sort of defensible from a, like, sort of curiosity standpoint. Like, hey, let's put a 
race of random giants who are kind of mysteriously benevolent and generally well, peaceable, but have, not always. I mean, to, yeah, they've they got. They seem to have their own agenda. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people object to the Earthkin because there's really no kind of warrant for them at all in the text. Um, it's one of the few places where, I mean, there are lots of places, of course, where the Lotro world expands on very, very slight references, right? Where there'll be a hint or an implication, which will then be fleshed out into a story, uh, within Lotro. And this is one of the very few examples of a place where something is just imported in a whole cloth and there's no kind of justification, no gesture at justification for them. Um, they're just kind of tossed in there. Yeah, and just such radical features that they've been given. The giant horns. The giant horns, which I, by the way, interacted with them numerous times before I realized they were not actually their own horns. I thought they were horned. Oh, they're all horns. Yeah, well, I finally realized well, that. say that? I get it immediately. Yeah. So, like, but, like... The first time I met them, it wasn't here. The first time I met them was in the Lonelands. Yeah, uh, Lonelands, You know, yeah, the ones there. One bit on the hill. And yeah, it looks like they have horns coming out of their shoulders. I was like, why do they have these ridiculous horns sticking out of their shoulders? And then I realized that they're, of course, detachable horns. They're the best detachable party horns. Um, they look like it'd knock you way off balance. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's still... Don't get me wrong, it still is sort of absurd, but... Uh, <laughs> it is a little bit goofy. Um, it really wasn't until I actually came here, the whole time I interacted with the ones in the Lonelands, I thought they were growing those horns. Um, <laughs> I think I, it was because it was so goofy, I couldn't imagine anyone wearing those horns electively, you know. But um, then when I came here and I did the quest where I had to carry the g- giant oryx skull back from the other camp across the way, that I was like, hey, look, I look just like those Earthkin guys. Um, they're, they're a bit jarring too. I mean, their faces don't look benevolent at all. They got these needle fine teeth. Yes. They got these goat eyes with the sideways pupils. Yes. And they have pointy ears. Yeah. Like elves. Or or goblins. They almost or look goblins. like goblin ears. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And this gorgeous emo purple hair. Yeah. Um. But yeah, they almost look like like fish, like or, or sort of fish yeah. cats. These guys, these guys especially. This guy over here at least is having a good time. Yeah, he's the only one who looks like it. But no, even then, he's just got his, his head is lolling, his eyes That's are true. just sort of blank, and his face looks just kind of dead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got rhythm, but yeah, it's it's. Uh... At what cost? At what cost? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's yeah. So they're alien and they're kind of weird. I mean, so again, I, I, I can I can understand the impulse uh-huh. to say, hey, let's like bring in this other culture um, and you know make them kind of like complex and interesting. Complex in the sense that like you know some of them are peaceful and they have these you know internal issue clan issues and there's the other rebellious clan which is all violent and bloodthirsty and. Do we join with Angmar or not? Yeah, exactly. They're being recruited by Angmar. And, you know, so the storylines I don't really object to. 
Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, the design is very more for you know role playing game kind of. Thing. Yeah, it it. But like I say, the the thing that kind of makes them jarring is that there are so few examples of them doing this kind of thing in game. Of just like we're just gonna flat make up something wholly unprecedented with no warrant of any kind in the text. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, like, what's interesting to me about it is that most of the time in most adaptations, like, people wouldn't even apologize for yeah. that. Um, uh, that, you know, like, it, but the, the, it, it's, to me, it's sort of like a testimony to the uh, the adherence to the books that the game shows that the Earth King or the Earth King should seem so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really kind of amazing that they don't do that more than they do. But yeah, and, and you can tell this is an early attempt to expand the lore, and they went in different directions for other parts of it. Yeah, and I'm I'm uh, you know it's hard for me not to be uh, influenced by you know we've uh, I, I've. I've heard Chris Pearson tell the story. Really, more importantly, I, whenever I think of the Earthkin, I can't help but think of the look on Chris Pearson's face when he talks about the Earthkin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that, actually. <laughs> uh, Chris Pearson, of course, one of the primary developers, the the senior lorehound, uh, as he yep. uh, gives his job description. And uh, he, is an, uh, he, is, he is an unfriend to the Earthkin. <clears throat> um... I think he said the Earthkin is what spawned him to start asking his developers every time, uh, the writing team especially, when every time they were going to deviate from the book, he'd uh, he, he, he'd throw the quote at them, what would zombie Tolkien's Exactly <laughs> right, yeah, that's the... the. Yes, yes. I, and I made them that sign for it. <laughs> yes, yes, when you drew zombie Tolkien for him, that's right. <laughs> yes, I did, he's going, lore... <laughs> Okay, so I'm looking around for that uh, oh, yeah. that ruin to the south, but <laughs> I think it's uh, straight ahead, actually, this way. Straight ahead, which way? This way. I think I see it. It's nestled in that one mountain over there. Yep, I see it. Aha! Yeah, let's go. Let's go check that out. Sorry, we are. Uh, where am I? Where are we right now? We're we're approaching the road. Yeah, we're in the road. Yeah, the road is just up here. Yeah. Yeah. I'll stop at the road so you guys can catch up. Where you at? Where did you guys all go? Oh, there you are. All right. Okay, so you can see a little bit of it here, but I think we need to get a closer look, honestly. It's right. Kind of Makes you wonder, is this... Uh, is this road... An old road? I see no evidence of paving. I mean, there are no paving stones. Even occasionally. Yeah, it might just be something cut into something. These are clearly modern in the sense of being Angmarim. Yeah. Oh, so was that a building or is that a, just a rock face over there? Huh. I thought it was a building too, but maybe it's just a rock face. Maybe they tucked a building in there somewhere and then Maybe it's stuck in the code somewhere, like an invisible chicken. 
Right, here's one of the bad giants who looks exactly like the good giants. Yeah. Oh. He's going for someone. Uh. Whew. Alright. Um. That's fun. Huh. That is just a rock face. Huh. Yeah, it didn't look like that from back there. No, it sure didn't. Here I thought it was a ruin. Yeah. Are a there... weird-looking ruin. Or a rock. Yeah, so weird-looking rock. We're heading down into a fairly significant orc camp down here. Uh... But I don't think, if I recall correctly, there aren't any ruins around there in the orc camp. No, I don't know. It's, it's all just rocks and rivets. Some machine-made, some natural. Hmm. You know what this banner looks like? It's an orc uh, banner, obviously, but... Looks a bit like that iron crown. And Rudar's... Exactly, uh, doesn't it? It looks kind of like Rudar's trees, except they're dead. Like, these are not... This is obviously not the Rudaran symbol. This is an orc symbol. But uh, it's I'm interesting. I'm sure that's the iron crown there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's interesting how similar that is. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm sure it's not a coincidence either. These are probably yeah. Angmar orc. Yeah. No, they are. But it's interesting how similar it is to the Rudaran symbol. Well, I remember we had the theory. We were thinking maybe that he was, you know, Rudar was sort of subtly being influenced yeah, by Angmar. Exactly. And his, uh, At his first. His design of and a they, logo. His design of a logo, exactly. Yeah, no, I think we, we got these, these sort of Angmarim uh, posts here, but then everything else I think is just tents. Tents and yeah, trees. Tents and war machines. Yeah, tents. I don't think the we get any are stone down here. Actually. Yes. Yeah. So this is not the case of them investing some ancient, you know, and some 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 ruins, some old Rudauran or. Which we have seen before. We've yeah, seen that in the definitely. Definitely. Um, but yeah, this place was obviously just sort of... It's it's barren. You, you wonder if it was this barren before they took over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you see, many of the trees have been felled, like over here, right? Mm -hmm. the well, these are sick trees, too. Look at them. They're yes. Not, these, this is what... I have. I have a pine tree on my property. It needs to go. kind of looks yes. like this. Yes, this, 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 you're right, this is not a well tree right here. Yeah. And then the one that that is green is, is cut down. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, that's, that's the one they want to build their machines with. They can't build machines with the rotten logs. They have to build it with the green logs. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go, to, I'm tempted, but I don't want to go traipsing through the whole yeah, camp. Yeah, I think because that'd be a little hard on some of our squishies. It, it would be, yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, it's also getting uh, fairly late. Oh, yeah, so it's the past midnight. It is past midnight. So the next time we come up to the to the North Downs, I want to head up uh, to the camps up by the Angmer, the Angmerim border. Mm -hmm. 
But I believe that next time um, we're gonna uh, we'll do the Barrow Downs for at least probably two sessions, um, <laughs> and then we'll uh, and then we'll come back and we'll head up to the northern sort of the northeast sections up there and up towards Zangmar there. Awesome. Yeah. Looking so. forward to it. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for joining me on the field trip and for tonight for class. Uh, I know I was back last week, but still, I still feel like I'm, you know, this week I'm kind of getting back into my normal schedule and routine. So it's nice to uh, be kind of getting back things uh, uh, together here. But yeah, no, I have a turkey break hangover right now just from having to do nothing and sleeping when I want to. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who needs that? That's right. All right. So thanks, everybody. And uh, don't forget Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Uh, and then I'll be uh, we'll be back, of course, on Tuesday. I think if I'm recalling correctly, I believe we have some film this week as well. Um, so some film is back on Friday and I'll be back on my Griffoot stream and everything. So it's uh, business as usual back again uh, uh, this week, which is great. So but thanks, everybody, for joining me and I'll see you guys around soon. All right. All right. Bye now. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.